Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we give unqualified legal advice, talk about the basics of estate planning, and the career that Dan Maseka might have had. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, great to see you. Great to see you as well. And this episode of Check Your Balances is brought to us by the great state of Colorado, where Ross has spent some time recently. It is. Yeah, I uh, through the magic of podcasting, we still had an episode last week, but I was on vacation really for the first time since I think we started our company at the beginning of 2021. So I had spent a couple days away, but it was the first real kind of week-long vacation that I took and uh, had some enjoyable time skiing, really enjoyed myself, and uh, I'm back in the saddle. Yeah, I think our trips to Colorado would be meaningfully different from each other. Well, yeah, if you're if you're not a skier, your trip should not look like mine. I, I literally skied seven days in a row. And my goal when I booked it was to see if I could get bored on the mountain. I wanted to see, is that enough time to be bored? It's not. I, I was still having fun. I didn't take a day off. It was great. You posted a picture from the top of one of the slopes you were at, and I had a panic attack looking at that thing. Well, luckily, I got down it alive, and I'm back and uh, ready to to share some financial planning knowledge with our listeners. Well, I'm glad that you're back, and appropriately, we're talking about risk management to some extent for this episode. Yeah, so so we hadn't really tackled estate planning, and we probably should have an attorney on the show for us, and we've asked a couple and just haven't been able to make uh, schedules line up yet in terms of doing that, but we did want to do this show because I think it, it matters for financial planning. So it does come with the disclaimer that we're not attorneys. Uh, We approach financial planning through a lens that we need to be tax smart. We need to be aware of the law and and law issues and tax issues uh, are a big part of financial planning. So uh, just keep that in mind that that we are not document preparers or uh, barred by any state to talk about this stuff. But I think it's uh, part of a basic financial plan and and we can get into it. And I'm pretty sure we could be attorneys if we wanted to. I'm going to put that out there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> ju- just a few more years of school and some tests, you know, what's what's there to it, right? Yeah, just fill in a couple bubbles and boom, attorneys. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, once we're barred in the U.S. somewhere, we'll we'll let you all know. Yeah, we'll, we'll get right on that. So let's start with some of the basics because I, I do think when people hear estate planning, the first thing that comes up and. John Oliver did a joke about this, that if you are willing to call the things that you own an estate, that already comes with a certain level of what feels like arrogance to it. But what are we really talking about, Dan? What, what are the issues that people are trying to control for? I mean, this in the simplest form is when you pass away, where does your stuff go and who's responsible for, for different things in your life? And, and for me, right, like you said, an estate comes with some level of, of, I don't know, gravitas to it when you say estate. Uh, and most of the things that I think the average person 
owns can be directed without the formalities of an estate plan. And you can control who's getting what as far as your accounts, IRAs, life insurance, all that stuff. You can just document somewhere on the account itself or the policy itself. Uh, For me, when estate planning became serious was when we had a kid. And now if something were to happen to my wife and I, someone would need to be in charge of this of this child. Right. And if you haven't made those wishes known, then you're essentially allowing the state to decide what happens from a guardianship perspective. So if you're listening to this right now and you've got kids, especially kids that are minors, and you don't have a basic will in place, please address that. That's like step one. And even if you do just like a quickie one online, there are some online versions either through like LegalZoom and I think Suze Yorman has a program that uh, goes state specific. And that's not going to be the best solution for somebody that needs more advanced work or has a more complicated situation. But at the bare minimum, you should do that because that's not a situation that anybody wants to be in imagining a courtroom that is deciding the fate of your children, right? That's just a bad situation. Right, certainly. And even the most well-intended people can fight over something. You know, I have siblings, my wife has siblings. There's going to be something to fight over always. And it's just a matter of if people choose to pursue it. So a will is like a nice safety net. Even if you don't think you need to go through all of that, it's such a simple thing to put in place just to have a baseline of protection if, God forbid, something happened to you. Now, even if you don't have kids, what is the will going to capture? Well, it's going to capture all of the things that are not controlled by contract or with like a beneficiary designation, right? So on an IRA, you have a beneficiary. You can have a contingent beneficiary. It can be multiple people. You can break them up into whatever chunks you want to give to all of these different people. Your personal effects don't have that. Your car doesn't have that. The things in your home, if there's something special that you want to give to somebody special, that's important for the will as well because that's going to direct any of the individual property items and it's essentially going to let the court know what you want to have happen. Now, I say let the court know pretty specifically because a will goes through probate. When something happens to you, the way that a will gets interpreted is essentially by the court system, right? That's not something where they just read it and somebody uh, as an executor splits things up. That is generally going to be the court assigning the property ownership as a result of reading the will. So you do want to be as specific as you can if you're trying to gift or bequest a specific item to a specific person. Right. A will becomes a public document too. So there's some advanced estate work you can do for people who are looking to avoid that scenario. But again, you know, I think at its at the most basic level, a will is important to have. And then you can build on top of that as your situation becomes more complex. Now, the other basic documents that we generally are going to see people need to have, number one is a durable power of attorney. That is really going to be what helps if you are not able to make financial decisions for yourself. Now, here's a common situation that can come up that is misunderstood. We talk a lot about IRAs from an investing perspective, but keep in mind that the I in IRA stands for individual. As a spouse, you do not have any legal rights to your spouse's IRA. So if one of you has been a breadwinner and has the majority of those assets or has even been the controller of the financial uh, strings so far and then is no longer able to make a decision, 
the receiving spouse or the other spouse calls in to the broker, whoever it is, and says, well, I'd like to make a distribution. This person is in the hospital and we need some money for hospital bills. They're going to tell you to pack sand. They will not honor that request from a spouse on an IRA if there is not some legal protection that has already been built in. And that's where a power of attorney, even if it's just for a spouse, is really important. Now, sometimes we see clients that have knowingly or not basically shared passwords and shared usernames and things like that on their brokerage accounts. We're not condoning that activity. But again, keep in mind that if you've been accessing a spouse's IRA or something like that electronically, if you have to call and execute a transaction or authorize a new bank for money to flow to or whatever that is, they're not going to honor that request. That's a pretty dangerous situation. Make sure that you remember those assets are individual in nature. It's amazing to me how many times I've been working with someone and we've either been talking about an IRA or setting up an IRA and I've basically been told, oh yeah, we have those are joint accounts. Let's set them up like that. And I have to go through that whole spiel of, well, these are by definition not joint accounts. They belong to one of you and one of you alone. The final thing, since we're talking about fun medical stuff, is an advanced medical directive. If you've got specific things that you would want your doctors or your care team to know about how you would choose uh, to be taken care of if you were not able to make those decisions for yourself, that's another basic estate planning document. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that you're supposed to keep that document in the refrigerator. Dan, have you ever heard that? I have not, but color me intrigued. The reasoning here, and if any of our listeners can confirm this, that would be great, is that EMTs are trained to look for prescription drugs that may need to be kept in the refrigerator. And if you keep that advanced medical directive in the same place that they're looking for the prescriptions, that they will retrieve that item as well. That was the reasoning that I'd heard. I don't know how often that happens or if that is the common practice. I mean, that's logically sound because it is important to be available, especially if you're in the hospital and, and you're not married and you ha- you want someone else to have that authority or that decision-making power. If they don't have access to that document or don't have it handy, you know, time can be of the essence, right? Right. You don't want it in a safety it. deposit box at that point. Right. Exactly. So I, I have been taught, you know, that it should be available handy by the person who has it. I've heard about keeping it on like key fobs or like USB drives, which... It's probably a thing of the past now. Maybe USB drives date us as far as old technology. But certainly all of your documents should be accessible. Yeah, I think having it somewhere that you can get to it quickly, uh, even if it's just a copy of it, is is really important because it doesn't do you any good if you can't locate the durable power of attorney or the advanced medical directive in the time of need. Okay, let's talk more about the actual estate tax because I think that when people think estate planning... That tends to be the first question that really comes up is what is going to be taxed? What am I dealing with from a tax perspective? And quite frankly, it's not that easy of a question to answer. No, not at all. I I think the first thing the average person goes to is the money they have in the bank. I have this much money. This is my estate. But that is a, a far cry from how they're going to calculate your taxable estate. And it gets complicated pretty quickly. And if you're living in an area like us, in the DC metropolitan area, and you're a real estate owner, you can bump that estate level up pretty fast with just the price of your property. Now, so he, here are the numbers that you need to keep in mind. 
Okay, so the first one is going to sound like it's no big deal because a lot of people have trouble hitting this, and if they are hitting it, uh, we tend to not be uh, particularly sympathetic to them. And that is that the federal estate tax right now, the exemption is at $12 million, $12,060,000 to be specific for 2022. That means per person, if you've got up to $12,060,000 of total assets, you can pass that on with no federal estate tax. That's $24 million as a couple, right? And so I think a lot of people hear that number and they go, oh, I don't have an estate problem. Let's move on. And they stop thinking about this. That number is up quite a bit. It tends to be indexed for inflation. So just a few years ago, it was at 11 million, uh, et cetera. But that number was raised meaningfully going from 2017 to 2018. Now, in 2017, the estate tax exemption was $5.5 million per person. So that means $11 million as a household. Now, again, that's still a pretty big number, uh, but it's not the end of the story because we're sunsetting the current law, meaning that's going to revert in 2026. So in 2025, if you die by then, you can give away a lot of money and not pay any federal estate tax. Once you get to 2026, it is going back to those 2017 levels, uh, and it's basically back. It's going to be down to about $6 million at that time. Right, unless anything changes in the interim. Again, that federal estate tax exemption amount is the level that your estate can be before you have to start paying federal estate taxes on your assets. Now, that's the federal number. It changes meaningfully state by state. So there's another layer you need to dig into while you're trying to determine whether you need to be planning for estate taxes as part of your financial plan. Yeah, so there's 33 states right now that don't have an estate tax, including Virginia, by the way, which, Dan, in my perpetual uh, Virginia versus Maryland debate, that's one more notch for Virginia on on why we're the superior state. Right. Maryland, on the other hand, has a $5 million estate tax exemption number. So we're miles apart from each other, but require very different planning. Absolutely. So those are the two numbers that you need to be aware of, right? Is how much in assets do you need before you start triggering the estate tax? But what you can tell is that even in the next four years, those numbers are going to change meaningfully, and they could change way more than that. And so in this uncertainty, I think a lot of people look at the estate tax and go, I'm not sure what to do if I'm anywhere near it or if I'm even planning to be near it. Right? If you're a 30-year-old that's a high-income earner and you don't have anywhere near $24 million saved today, but you are projected to have well in excess of $10 million by the time that you retire or late in life. Right, which is not that crazy to do. I know that sounds like a big number, but somebody saving a good chunk of their income that's a high earner, that's not a crazy path. How do you handle that? Because it gets into this really difficult way to plan if everything is uncertain and the road is wide open. Right. It's it's hard enough to forecast anything for decades into the future, let alone how to forecast both your personal net worth growing and the changes that might come about uh, from a legislative perspective as as far as the changes in estate tax uh, numbers. And really where this comes into play for me, right? Estate tax is a tax like anything else. If you have the money, you can pay it, right? So if you have a huge estate and it's all in cash and investments, it sucks, but you can pay, you can pay the bill. 
you might choose to insure against that anyway and have something left to your beneficiaries after you died to help with that. Where this gets more complicated and where you can get into more trouble is if you have an illiquid estate. So if you have land that would need to be sold, if you own a business that would need to be sold or that would need to generate some sort of capital to the person inheriting it to pay that bill. And if you've started a business a couple of years ago and it's growing meaningfully, you might still be far from that number, but it's not a stretch to imagine that you could get yourself into a position where you have a business worth tens of millions of dollars, but no cash available to pay a pending tax bill. And a forced sale of a business or a forced sale of a closely held asset, uh, we know that that's a bad situation. We know that because anything could happen, right? If you're if you're being forced to sell, time is not on your side. You've got tax bills due. And if that becomes public knowledge, then the person that is in the buyer's seat has all the power. And that's not what you want, right? Similar to the reason we don't want to sell stocks in a down market because people have been scared out of the market and demand just isn't high enough. We also don't want to sell closely held family assets or personal assets, particularly if they're meaningful to the family. Right. Even if they're not, you don't want to be in a fire sale situation where you're just having to blow it out at any price that you can. But if it's a sentimental thing or something where the the family wants to continue to run the business, not having liquidity there is a real problem and and can lead to some some horrible things. So that is generally, and we did a whole episode about insurance, but that is where life insurance is going to have a big part to play because that's what's going to create the liquidity. As long as somebody is insurable, uh, either through you know some sort of permanent life insurance policy. When we say permanent, that means that it's going to be there for your entire lifetime. You are expecting to hold that contract until death, right? That's what we mean by permanent. So that's really what where we get into those types of planning situations from an insurance perspective. And again, Dan and I don't sell insurance, but we do help with these planning situations on what is needed there. Now, the good news is that if you're unsure, right, again, if you're in that spot where you're going, I don't know if I'm going to have this problem, I'm on a trajectory that is likely to lead to a meaningful amount of wealth over my lifetime, but I'm not sure what's going to happen legislatively, I'm not sure if I'm going to have the liquidity, I'm not sure if I'm going to choose to spend my liquidity to pay estate taxes for my family, even if I could, then how do you deal with it? That's where I love convertible term insurance, convertible term life insurance. It's kind of like buying a call option on your insurability. So I could take a policy today for whatever term I want, 20, 30 years even. And what it allows you to do is pay the low prices of term insurance today and then later decide to convert it to a permanent life insurance policy. So if if I don't have the capital to pay the high premiums of permanent insurance, but I think that might be something that's going to be a reality in my future, I can lock in my health level today. Um, it's saying I don't need to requalify for my insurability. Now, they do reprice at the age that I convert the policy, which is important to remember, but I know I'll have that option down the road. Now, I will say that that's where not all term policies are created equal. So you can't just buy a term policy and assume that it's A, convertible, or B, convertible into any type of permanent policy. So you do need to do a little bit of digging to make sure you're getting the right thing that fits your plan. And I think this answers a question that I've gotten occasionally over the years, which is when people go to one of these term insurance kind of marketplaces, 
right? There's a bunch of them online where you can just plug in, this is my age, this is my relative health, and it returns quotes from like 10 different companies. Well, one of the things they're showing you for those companies is the credit rating. Okay, so that is important. You do want a company that is at least in good financial health so that they are still around to pay the benefit if and when you need it. But the second thing is those language differences. Because if you're looking at a 20-year term contract and you see 10 different prices, the instinct would be, well, why would I ever pay more for this coverage than I would need to? I'm going to go with the cheapest one all the time. That's really the difference in most of them is the language and specifically what you can convert into. So if you can convert into some donkey of a policy that's not very good <laughs> and you're not going to get anything out of it when you try and do that, it's going to be crazy expensive and, and the terms are going to be horrible for you. Well, that's not very good. If you think this might be an issue for you, it is worth talking to an actual insurance agent that knows these contracts, preferably a broker that represents multiple carriers, not just a single carrier. But that's where they're going to be able to help you into figuring out what would you potentially want to convert into. Because I think that's a critical element. And and really, Dan, you and I have talked a lot about flexibility on this show because we believe a lot in it. And we believe in the uncertainty of life and financial planning. We don't think that we're predictors of the future when we look at this stuff. And so that flexibility has always taken a front seat for me. Yeah, I agree. And we've been talking a lot about what you might need in the future. So perhaps you'll need life insurance to cover an illiquid asset, but you may want life insurance in the future too. So if I'm sitting here today without kids and without really a need to leave anything behind, but perhaps in 20 years, my outlook on life changes and my priorities change, maybe I want to leave money to a um, charity that I'm passionate about. Those are all things that could play a factor down the road, and just having that option is valuable in and of itself. Yeah, so that tends to be our go-to option for somebody where uh, they're on a strong accumulation trajectory. Maybe there's no estate problem right now, but they might face one in the future. That's a key, key component to keep in mind is that you can get that contract today and lock in the insurability just with that conversion privilege. And if you're buying term insurance to cover temporary needs as well, like covering um, your family until your children are grown, it never hurts to double check what those provisions are on whatever policy you're buying to just to keep the flexibility open. So that's it. That's our primer on estate planning. I do think that we're going to get an attorney on our show uh, to talk maybe more about some nuanced things and some interesting things going on in the estate planning world. Because again, we're we're not the the pure experts here. We We know the limits of our knowledge. Uh, but we hope this has been helpful. And if you're experiencing one of these situations, uh, we, we hope that it's given you some direction on what you might need and, and where you might go to get it. Ross, have I ever told you my LSAT story? No. When I say I could have been an attorney, there's some there's some backing to that, maybe. But in college, a good friend of mine, I guess we must have been really bored. I don't, I don't know what was happening in our minds while this was going down. Bored or having a couple soda pops? couple soda pops but we did we were we decided that we could easily take the LSAT without any preparation and go to law school that it, it's not that big a deal and in this conviction that we had together we registered for the first available exam and made a pact that neither of us were to prepare in any sort of way for this thing and sure enough we did it we went we arrived days later whenever whenever that exam date was at the UMBC campus where they were holding the exam and took our LSATs. Uh, it was a competitive thing between us and it was 
pretty funny because everyone in line was freaking out. This was their future. We didn't care. We weren't prepared. It, it didn't matter to us what, whether we did well or poorly, except that we wanted to beat each other. And uh, that that's the story. I could have I could have applied to law school. I could have been Daniel Maseka Esquire sitting here presenting the the legal side of the conversation we just had. So did you win? I did win. He wasn't happy about it. I, I've also, I, I don't know what this says about my personality or yours, can, since we've both clearly done this. Uh, I've also wondered uh, just about certain tests, if I could take them without studying and how I would do. And specifically, uh, like the Series 7, which I took when I mm. first became a broker back uh, in 2008, I, I took and passed. Uh, and I, I passed it in one shot. And we had some friends that had to take it again fairly recently. And I wondered if I could just sit down and knock that out. I hope that I could. I really do. I, I, I hope I wouldn't have to study for it. But the fear of being embarrassed and having and having failed it also drives me. And so I don't know that I could have actually done it and, and no studied for it. My academic advisor thought I was an idiot for attempting that. Does that become a permanent record for you? I suspect it's somewhere. It's been, I mean, a decade and a half or something like that. I don't know. It's been a long time. But the question is, if if you were seriously exploring becoming an attorney, you would probably study and retake it. Would they also see your no study attempt as they were evaluating whether or not they should let you in? I'd imagine so, because the institution has that record somewhere. Uh, maybe they'd have to average it. Malcolm Gladwell, if I remember right, actually did this with his assistant as well. They both took the LSAT just to see how they how they turn out. They were doing a study on test taking, which I thought was funny listening to it because I could relate so heavily to that. All right. Well, now that we've gone deeply into garbage time, uh, we should all go and look up Dan Maseka's LSAT record and see if he actually could have been an attorney. I'll do the same. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed our show this week. And shoot us an email. Check your balances at Outlook.com. If you've got stuff that you'd like to hear me and Dan weigh in on, we appreciate you. We'll see you next time. <laughs>